0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Adventurous Investor in Conversation. This is the first of two episodes with Joachim Clement. He's a strategist over at investment bank Liberum and also runs his own fantastic blog called Clement on Investing. What that blog does, which is great, and I thoroughly recommend going and subscribing, is he talks a lot about ideas coming out of academic research by economists and how they apply to ordinary investing and institutional investing. And in this episode. I'm going to quiz Joachim on some of the key ideas that are coming out of that academic research and how you can apply them to your portfolio. I'm going to focus on three or four basic ideas that you can put into practice. Now, I apologise, there's a slight echo on Joachim's side, but it's absolutely listenable. Next episode, which is coming out in a few days, talks about ESG investing, which I am slightly, well, more than slightly critical of. Anyway, it's a good discussion, so listen to that in a couple of days' time. First, though, let's talk about four or five basic ideas to make you a better investor. Okay. Um, I, I love your your blogs, Yoko. They're really very interesting. But one of the things I like about what you write about is you look at the academic evidence, and the academic evidence quite often knocks down an awful lot of things that investors hold true and dear. And, and therefore, one of the things that whenever I particularly talk to younger investors and novice investors, try and just give them three or four simple rules by which they can sort of invest, which is actually grounded – in evidence, yeah, and stuff mm. that works and where we, academics have looked at it and go, well, actually, by and large, it sort of works. Yeah. Um, no, we're, we're not making any investment advice here. We've put those provisos on. Um, but, are, would you pick kind of any three or four simple rules that you think investors can just stick with over the long term?
1: Um, what, where would you start? So I would start with two simple rules. Mm-hmm. The first one is the fundamental observation that if you want to have higher returns, you have to uh, enter and a- accept higher risks. Yeah. Now, we can discuss for the next five hours how to define risks, but in, as, a, as a rule, I think this holds true. We know, for example, that stocks, which are an ownership stake in a company and hence have higher risk because you're fully exposed to bankruptcy, tend to have higher returns than bonds. Okay, that's as simple as that. So if you wait long enough, your stock portfolio should have a higher, a better outcome in terms of wealth than a pure bond portfolio. Long enough means decades, years yep. and decades. Um, so that's rule number one. Um, the second rule is... Uh, If you are thinking about specific investments and if you want to go down that road and selecting specific investments, the price is made by supply and demand. And that is a very important thing to consider whenever you hear great investment stories about how this investment is going to benefit from the transformation of the world economy towards yep. new energy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, because usually what the mistake people make is they only look at the supply or only look at the demand. All those stories are stories about how the demand for electric vehicle is going yep. to go through the roof. Absolutely correct. But where there is a high demand, more and more companies will provide supply.
0: And we, and and we know, know that, should because we look at, for instance, the commodities markets. Exactly. Where there's kind of what we call in the of high elasticity of supply. And, you know, if you set the price of, I don't know, cobalt, copper, coal, oil, very high, yeah, surprise, surprise, loads of supply comes in the market and the price goes down. And loads of study over the long term has shown that actually – It it basically drives the returns down to not much above zero in commodities, for instance. So that's and equally true for thematic equities.
1: That is, that is true for a lot of industries. Uh, so to give you a concrete example, people have been uh, touting Tesla as kind of the revolutionizing company in electric vehicle markets. And that was true because they were the first ones there. But is Tesla going to be as great an investment as it was in the last 10 years for the next 10 years? Well, I would say that the Germans, the Chinese, they're all offering now electric vehicles. So the competition, and the supply there is so strong that the margins are going to disappear for most of those providers and that means that Tesla is not going to be able to grow as fast uh, as, as uh, it used to. So the competition will limit growth and the margins will erode as competition comes to the market and you wonder whether Tesla shares will be able to have that stellar performance going forward. So are you effectively
0: saying that there's been a big boom in thematic funds? Um, They're quite often built upon another word that economists and academics love using, narratives, um, which is usually a big story, as you said, the transition to um, electric cars and batteries. So are you saying that thematic investing doesn't work?
1: No, thematic investing actually does work because a lot of those narratives last for a long time. It's just that these themes eventually run out of steam. Yeah. And the, the tricky bit is to figure out when those themes kind of reverse and stop working. Uh, and that's why I'm a big investor into looking into these narratives and these themes. But the really, really difficult part is finding out when will they accelerate and when will they stop working. And, and you have to kind of switch from one theme to another after a while.
0: Okay, so that, that's interesting. Um, now that, that, I mentioned thematic. Now that, a lot of those are, most of those thematic, uh, investments are done via funds and, and a lot mm-hmm. of those funds yeah. are structured as index tracking funds, um, or exchange traded funds, uh, popular with lots of investors. Um, now you, you talk to, I've talked like you to dozens of academics over the years and, and they always do again like we've just said obviously i'm not giving you investment advice but they then just say well actually index tracking funds are a really rather good idea um and and then it's but and then obviously one bit of you goes oh yeah but that's just a bit boring isn't it yeah mm-hmm. um I, I just you know that I, I like the idea of finding a great active fund manager so what what's are there
1: anything around
0: funds and indexes that you think are relevant
1: so that's the third rule uh, that I think is always true. Whatever you pay in fees is gone out of your pocket no matter what. Mm. Fees are certain, returns are not. Mm. Uh, so keeping your fees low is a crucial element to investment mm. success. And it only is valuable to invest in an actively managed fund if you have a pretty high chance of this kind of active manager that you select outperforming the market to such an extent that the higher fees are warranted. Now, can you do that? That is an open question. And to be perfectly honest, when it comes to large cap stocks or bonds, etc., I am investing passively as well. Uh, where I think there is an opportunity to invest in active manager is more in the smaller cap space, where there's a lot more inefficiency, and maybe in emerging markets. But but in general, when it comes to the FTSE 100 or the S&P 500, just go index. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> no, no, that was absolutely. I'm, I'm with you. On that one. I, I, I suppose one of the arguments that we're we're looking at everything through a kind of uh, simple kind of equities framework. Mm -hmm. And one of the arguments that a lot of, uh, a lot of people in the investment industry, well-paid people in the investment industry say that you you should look at it. Everything's like alternatives and, and, you know, long, short hedge fund strategies. I mean, you know, the long, long list of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and and it says we're, we're both talking about a very old fashioned style of investing, which is you have some equities, you stick them in a diversified fund, they're probably large cap focused, and then you maybe have some bonds depending upon your your age and kind of risk tolerance. And then just be done with it. Kind of, you know, that I suppose the old sixty forty portfolio is one version of it. And you have yeah. various other, you know, versions of it, you know, depending on the percentage of equities mix. But there, there is a kind of more faddish school, which I mm-hmm. talk about and you've talked about before, where um, you know, you look at more alternatives where mm-hmm. active fund managers might be able to add value because it's quite difficult to stick in an index Mm. what do you think about all these out stuffing stuff outside of the box
1: so there is value to some of those alternatives uh those less liquid alternatives and and to be perfectly honest i would typically say real estate or property as an investment is definitely worthwhile because it is different from equities and bonds it has different cycles It, it kind of works in different ways uh, another alternative investment that I very much like is infrastructure, uh, simply because, again, the cash flows are linked to inflation. It's very different. Uh, and then we can talk about commodities, whether that works or not. Uh, I used to be a big fan of commodities. I've kind of fallen a little bit from from the belief why, why that, that, that it works. I,
0: I, 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 I suppose I articulated <clears throat> possibly one of the reasons why you might be a bit suspicious earlier on, mm-hmm. which is the long-term returns, superior returns from – Commodities tends to sort of fade away because it just fades into the noise. Um, but I suppose there is a very, for instance, there's a very strong argument at the moment, going back to what we said earlier, transition, new metals coming along the, along the road. You know, um, Everybody seems to want to buy a lithium fact- processing factory. Um, the, the commodities might change and might be interesting.
1: Yes and no. Uh, depends on how you invest in commodities. And that's where it gets really tricky. Uh, if you invest directly into those commodities, with the exception of gold and other precious metals, you can't really hold them yourself. You have to do it via futures. And then the technicalities of futures means that there's something called a roll return, which mm-hmm. kind of erodes your uh, your performance and that has over the last 20 30 years been so bad that commodity futures have had a miserable miserable performance uh if you go into commodity stocks like commodity mining companies etc what you effectively get is a business and you're getting a stock investment. And and I have nothing against mining stocks or oil and gas stocks, etc., but I would classify them as, as equity investments, not as commodity investments, because the, the volatility of the share price is mostly driven by equity markets and how the business is doing, less so by the actual oil price or, or copper yeah. price or lithium price.
0: And it's very noticeable, I, I, when I talk to equity fund managers, same as you, I'm sure, they, they tend to sort of fall into largely one of two camps. I'm, I'm being very simplistic here, but a kind of value people and then growth people. And whenever I talk to growth people and you mention, for instance, energy or mining, you can see their eyes glaze over. Yeah. And they go, well, why would I be interested in that? I, I mean, that's not interesting. I mean, you know, commodities have been around the year, since the year dots. so they don't really care about them. They talk about tech stocks and transformation and narrative. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to value investors, who you think might be interested in them, yeah, because value, they are by by definition more interested in cheaper stocks, um, which are sort of underappreciated by the market. They're (laughs) they'll have a look of disgust on their face. Yeah, when you mention commodities, they go, "Ugh, why would I want to invest in something like that?" Because it just—it's very cyclical. It just goes up and down, and Mm. I don't know. I can't predict it. So you often wonder they're the kind of, you know, Billy No-Mates kind of left at the back of the
1: class because most of the big schools of equity investing don't really like them. Mm. And and I made the same uh, experiences when I talked to fund managers. Uh, but the interesting thing, when it comes to the value fund managers, their views have changed quite a bit okay. since the Ukraine war, uh, simply because after 10, 15 miserable years with energy stocks, they were kind of like, let's not touch that stuff. And then all of a sudden, oil prices go through the roof because of the Russian invasion uh, and, and people are reconsidering. And when it comes to growth investors, I usually get there attention by telling them, yeah, well, but not all mining stocks are are value stocks or low growth stocks. In fact, some of them are actually really growth areas. If you look at rare earth processing and lithium and and stuff like that, uh, the growth rates that these companies can achieve on on their revenue base or on their profit base. Is not something to sneeze at. It's never going to be the same as a big technology company that is kind of, kind of revolutionizing the world with its platform or whatever. But compared to other growth sectors or growth companies in robotics, digitalization, et cetera, which is more old industry, perfectly fine. No problem there. And that's when they they start to kind of get interested in that topic as well. So
0: it sounds like you, you're you've grown less enthusiastic about what I suppose could be called pure commodities, yeah, and possibly sometimes, occasionally, um, more interested in commodity equities just as, as, as a way of expressing
1: secular growth stories. Correct. Yes. So essentially, what I end up with is equities, bonds possibly cash, not over the last 15 years, but now it's getting interesting again now that we have 3 4% interest rates, uh, and then uh, property and infrastructure. And then the, it comes to the fourth rule of what would you give to, uh, as advice to all the investors out there is don't overcomplicate things in trying to figure out which one of those asset classes is going to perform how well, etc., Put yourself into the position that is probably the most correct position for most investors who are not specialists and tell yourself, okay, what do I really know about financial markets and where these kind of different assets are going? And if you're really honest to yourself, you basically say, I have no clue and if fund managers are honest to themselves they also would say in many cases i have no clue but they can't say that because yeah, they're paid fair. to know um but and, and similar to me like i will never in public admit well. that i have no and idea I, I, I
0: freely go i have absolutely zero idea which of these big scenarios will happen next your exactly but
1: but that also uh, frees you up and makes your life much easier because if you have if you Are honest and say I have no idea which one of these different assets are going to perform better than the others. Well, the simplest way to go and invest is put the same amount of money in all these things, just kind of equal weight. And it turns out that these kinds of equal-weighted portfolios perform surprisingly well you have to have exceptional knowledge about individual returns for different asset classes in order to beat such an equal-weighted portfolio. So an equal-weighted portfolio should be your starting point for all your investment endeavors, and then you have to have really, really good reasons to deviate from that.
0: So let me. Uh, uh, we'll look at this equal-weight idea. I'm glad you brought it because I'm quite a big fan of equal-weight ideas as well. Uh, Let me look at it in two parts. First of all, at the kind of portfolio level, Mm. and then at the index level. Mm. Um, So let's look at portfolio level. So does that mean that, I mean, for instance, um, there are portfolios like a permanent portfolio. um, Is it Harry Brown? Uh, Harry Brown, yeah. Yeah, Harry Brown portfolio, which is effectively equal weight, correct me if I'm wrong, gold, bonds, equity, cash. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, And there are variations, I should say, on that model. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, uh, so... That, that's effectively what you're talking about, equal weight each of the, the
1: big building blocks inside a portfolio. Yeah. And does that, and does it work? It does work. Uh, and uh, there are studies that showed that it works on the level within equities. So you can go, for example, look into all the stocks in a specific index and then equal weight them. And in the long run, that equal weighted index will outperform a regular index um, there. It works across asset classes. Um the only thing that you have to be aware of, if you mix very different risks, so cash with equities, what happens, obviously, when you put an equal weight to it, your, your average risk of the portfolio goes somewhere in the middle. So you can't really compare that portfolio with a pure equity portfolio anymore because you're comparing apples to oranges. But uh, at least when it comes to comparing apples to apples and comparable risks, uh, in those portfolios, those equal-weighted portfolios outperform practically everything.
0: I want to pick up on that second point I mentioned, and you just mentioned about equal weight within indices. Mm. Um, lots and lots of people, myself included, you as well, we all talk about benchmark indices like I don't know the S and P 500, the FTSE 100, FTSE All Share, whatever it is. Um, but particularly at the S and P 500, and we all we all use that as a benchmark, and that to those who don't know, is what we call market cap weighted. So that means the larger the market capitalization of the companies, the larger their weight in the index. So if you've got a stock that's a business that's worth 100 billion, that and the, business, and the business is worth a billion, the one that's worth 100 billion on average might be worth 100 times more in the index. It doesn't quite work out that way because lots of other things get in the way. But that's the way it works. Now, equal weight indices have been around for a long time. And effectively they take the company that's worth a hundred billion and one billion and give them the same weight. Again, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but by and large, that's how it works. And now, does
1: that work? Yes, it it does. The problem just that you have as an investor is go find an index product, an index fund or an ETF that tracks such an equal weighted index. Uh, I would love to do that. Uh, but that gets me back to, to the point that I made about costs are certain, returns are not. Uh, when, I, when I talk about my own savings, you know, I don't have the size that a pension fund has who can basically buy every single stock in the S&P 500 and then have a portfolio of 500 stocks. Uh, that's just not possible for me. And so I have to go for a low-cost, easy-to-implement solution, and that means I use market cap-weighted indices because that's the stuff that is available for very, very low costs everywhere.
0: Although I would point out uh, for listeners that if you do search hard enough, there are a few, not many, equal weight products out there
1: um for
0: things particularly american markets actually it's not it's not bad actually
1: um, in the u.s you US can get it but yeah try to I get it in it. the uk or eurozone and yeah, have very, yeah. very yeah, you have to look very very long
0: yeah that's they 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 and they don't really publicize them as well uh, um, okay so so uh, so equal weight even with indices works okay um let, let's put it all together and what i wanted to ask i've got a couple of questions to finish off with a lot of investors get very interested in macro stuff. Mm. Um, on my blog, I talk a lot about Monday macro and all that kind of stuff. Everybody journalists love talking about it. Strategists are just as guilty of it. Um, does macro matter? So, uh, there's, And in particular, I want to focus on regime change.
1: Mm. Yeah,
0: um, And this is a term, it's not really meant to apply to military coups, that kind of stuff. It, it's about regime change in terms of you might have one economic um, normal So low interest rates, uh, low inflation, and then you might have another economic normal comes along, high interest rates, high inflation rates. And that we find, by and large, or do we, that's what I'm going to ask you, do we move between these regimes? And when these regimes move, rather like the tectonic plates on the earth, they can have quite big impacts. So should we reflect them? Is the, does the evidence suggest should we reflect them in our portfolios or should we just go bugger it? You know, going back to your earlier point, we just don't, we just don't know and therefore don't bother.
1: So to answer your question with my view, macroeconomics absolutely matters. Uh, the world behaves differently when we have zero interest rates than when we have three or four percent interest rates, let alone 10% interest rates. Uh, similarly, in a recession, people behave differently, markets behave differently, uh, than when we are in boom times. So macro absolutely matters. It matters a lot. And these kind of tectonic changes where you kind of go from a, from a very established regime and then all of a sudden go into some completely different environment, they change basically every asset class or almost every asset class and every asset in your portfolio. The correct uh, question to ask, however, is can you predict these changes and can you predict them better than the specialists or the professionals or the market overall? And there, I would say that is a much, much harder thing to do. It's like trying to compete with Usain Bolt in a 100-meter dash. Even though Usain Bolt is retired now, I'm pretty sure I don't have the faintest chance in keeping up with him. Um, And uh, uh, similarly, if you are trying to kind of manage your portfolio and shift your portfolio in anticipation or in reaction to such market changes, are you going to do that before those hundreds and thousands and millions of professional investors have done that before you and actually ma- moved the market already in that direction.
0: Okay, I get that. But I suppose my, the, the, the lurking concern a lot yeah. of investors have. and uh, So let's, let's make it concrete. Um, literally in my blog this week, and I know you talked a bit about it before as well, there's a lot of talk about us moving from a low rates longer scenario mm-hmm. you know, to a higher rates longer scenario. Mm-hmm. Where interest rates—I mean, literally—as we record today, Jerome Powell has gone out and said that you know he might carry on increasing interest rates, and suddenly you know the look on investors' faces of kind of like, oh my god, maybe five percent is the new normal, maybe it's a bit higher. Now that, as we said, does have huge implications. And if you—and if if for instance you've got a portfolio, for instance, that is very long term, one hundred percent equities focused. And, and, and because it's probably market cap weighted by, cause you haven't got a lot of choice because that's where most of the funds are. Um, you're by default sort of ended up being stuffed into kind of a slightly more techie growth orientated large cap portfolio. And that's not for your choice. That's just the way the market works. Um, and that's changing. It's coming down mm-hmm. there, but it's still not changed that much. Mm-hmm. You are in a bunch of stocks that don't tend to do terribly well in a high interest rate environment. Yeah. Uh, there's a big debate to be had there because some people will go that the, the likes of Apple and everything got pricing power and they will be all right in an inflationary environment. But what well, I suppose what I'm trying to get at though is, is that you're sitting there going, no, 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 I don't I ignore all this. I, I can't predict everything, but the whole world's changed beneath you. And actually the stuff that you thought you have been invested in for the last 20 years actually might not do terribly well in the next 20 years because there are periods. 20 year periods, 10 year periods with whole sways of the market just derate. Yeah. Um, and then they gently like a balloon kind of collapsing into themselves. They just spend years going down. You're in the wrong thing for a quite a long period of time. That I th- suspect is what is at the back of people's minds when they go, I do look at a macro.
1: Yes. Um, and the advice that I have given during my wealth management private banking days to investors and that I have followed myself uh, in my portfolio was to do the following. Before you start rummaging around your Retirement savings. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <left of>
1: them? <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's like, uh, it's probably not such a great idea to go and just kind of sell everything and go into bonds or whatever you know, and yeah. stuff like that. But kind of have what I call a play portfolio uh, or playground portfolio. So take a little bit of your savings. Yeah. I typically recommend 5 to 10%. Yeah. Put them literally into a different investment account so that it doesn't, show up when you go into your bank or your online broker statement and you you see the big portfolio and the the small one. Just have a separate one for that. And... Then there you can express your views on the macro economy and what you think that is going to mean for some of the stocks. So you might want to go out of those large tech companies and you want to go maybe, I don't know, more into some European companies, which are much cheaper, much more old economy, but also probably more on the forefront of the uh, energy revolution and that kind of ESG topic that uh, is very, very hot at the moment as a, as a potential long-term trend. Now, whenever you shift something around in that playground portfolio, have an investment diary. Note down three bullet points. First bullet point, what did I do? Second bullet point, why do I think this is going to work? Third bullet point, why could this possibly go wrong? And do that literally on the same day or the next day after you did it. And then once a year, you have to fill out your tax forms. And that's when I sat down and looked at my investment diary of the previous years and and basically checked. So was it right? Was it wrong? Where was I right? Where was I wrong? It's the most humbling experience that you can possibly have. And, and I advise anybody who has problems with self-esteem, don't do it because that's going to ruin it. <laughs> I must admit, I do that. I have to do that for my columns
0: and my articles, and it is a deeply embarrassing process.
1: I do that every year because every year, as in my job, I have to give an outlook and I have to kind of guide fund managers. And then at the end of each year, I have a review piece. And trust me, the 2022 review piece was not fun to write. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that
0: that brings me to my very last question before we finish, because actually sort of prompts a nice question to rebalance or not to rebalance? Mm. Mm. Uh, just a practical question, really, isn't it? Really, yeah. um, and uh, there's and you talk to I've talked to many experts, and there's a vast range of views. Yeah, yeah. you know Jack Bogle, who's no longer with us, but the founder of Vanguard, basically was quite dismissive. with don't bother, and if you do, maybe just do it once a year. Uh, but he, I, I got the distinction. He wasn't even enthusiastic about that. And then you have other people who say rigorously do it every year. Yeah. And, th- and just so that we all understand what rebalancing yeah, means, yeah, yeah. it just means that if you've got, to use uh, your argument, if you've got five stocks, you've equally weighted them. They're you know, £20 each. And then one of them, I don't know, for argument's sake, goes up to £100. You just sell the one that's gone up to so it, comes back to the equal weight. And you just methodically do that mm. and some people do that professional fund managers do that quite a lot um uh, and most investors can't be bothered and probably do what you do which do every year should you shouldn't you what's the evidence
1: it's very mixed <laughs> <laughs> so there is there is no right answer but uh in my experience a good compromise for everyday investors is to look at it once a year uh and to basically have a kind of a band around your weight. So if you assume you have five different asset classes, so bonds, equities, real estate, infrastructure, and cash, you want to have 20% in each, uh, one-fifth in each. If one of them goes above 25% or below 15%, then you use that money to rebalance towards 20 Yeah. Otherwise, let it run. Because the problem is also that rebalancing means you have to trade, that costs money, and is it worth all that? So a simple rule is have a band around it, and then once you hit that band, you, you start rebalancing, and then you buy a chunk, basically.
0: So just to to kind of simple rebalancing, simple port, uh, kind of portfolio allocation, think about equal weight, uh, don't get too hung up on macro, keep costs under control. And, and you should be all right. You should be all right, yes. <laughs> Thank you very much, O'Connor.
1: Thank you, David.